Welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I'm not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who tricks my friends into attending prayer services. I'm that friend. (laughs) (laughs) I did not get tricked. I was invited. And to be clear, this episode is all about a podcast field trip that Brian took me on today. Yeah. I was told to come to Brian's church on a Wednesday night at a designated time. All I knew was that I was going to have fun, and then it didn't matter if I was in my gym clothes. Yeah, uh, prayer was probably implied when it was at a church. I mean, I guess (laughs) I figured there might be praying, but it might not be about praying. Sure, yeah, it was definitely about praying. And I don't think I (laughs) saw that coming. Okay. I figured it would be more talking and less praying, but there might be, like, prayer options available. Sure. Yeah, if I was just going to talk at you, I would do it here in this little room. That's true. <laughs> I was, I was going to make you do a thing. So... We did do a thing. We, so, Brian, can you explain the thing we did? Yeah. So, a little context. My church is doing a series on different styles of prayer each Wednesday during Lent. And this week... I was the person leading the prayer service, and we were talking about praying while walking a labyrinth. Which was really cool. Yeah, so that is what I invited Shannon to, and it was a little explanation about the history and how to do it, kind of like what we do here on the podcast. And then we went and did the thing, we walked the labyrinth, and then after that we had a little discussion. Yeah, so basically Brian did an episode of Sunday School for Heathens, For a bunch of his parishioners and me, only I didn't make quippy commentary during it. And then we did an activity, and then they talked. Yeah. And I sat there. You could have also talked. I could have. I thought about it, and then I didn't, and then I thought about it, and then I didn't. One of the things that I need to work on in those types of settings is I get nervous when there's silence, and I need to wait a little bit longer. (laughs) Yeah, I think you can let the silence get a little awkward. I think also maybe having a couple of different questions... To ask people is, like, never a bad idea, but I thought you did fine. So, that was what we did tonight, and now we're gonna do basically the the talk that I did earlier about labyrinths. Why don't you catch up everybody that's not me on labyrinths? Well, you wanna answer the first question? What is a labyrinth? A labyrinth is a path that you can walk as part of a meditative exercise in praying. And so the way you described it today is that it's not like a maze where there's a way in and a way out. The way in and the way out are the same. So you walk the path through all of its twists and turns to the center, and you retrace your steps all the way back out. Yeah. You said it's uh, for a meditative thing for prayer. Not necessarily. Okay. In a Christian context, totally. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. a a prayer aid. But it goes beyond that um, because it's not just a Christian thing. Sure. I'm not going to history at you. You should history and stuff. <laughs> That's your job. We, we can get there. We can, we can do history. I want to make one more point before we get to history. Sure. When you look at a labyrinth, it totally looks like a maze. And yeah, one thing is that it's the same, only one entrance exit um, instead of a start and an end. And also there are no dead ends. It's just a single path all the way through. Correct. That is a good point to make. Good clarification. So history, not a Christian thing. They've been around in some form or another for, like, 4,000 years. Which is a long time. Yeah. And that both surprised me and didn't surprise me. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about when were the Greek myths written. True. Because we think about labyrinths, we think about the myth of the Minotaur. 
Yeah, and I, in my talk, mentioned the Minotaur in passing, because that's the story that people have heard when they've heard of Labyrinth. Shannon, did you want to expand upon the Minotaur? I guess only that I'm (laughs) not sure that the Labyrinth in that sense is a Labyrinth in this sense. I think that Labyrinth might have been more of a maze. Because there, if I remember the story correctly, you definitely have to escape the labyrinth. Like, they put you in the labyrinth and then you have to get out. And I don't know if they just, like, drop you in the middle. My fuzzy memories of that story involve there definitely being, like, dead ends and twists and turns in a way that the labyrinth in the way you're speaking doesn't. Because, like, it contains this minotaur. I do know for sure it only has one entrance. Sure. I could not tell you for certain if there are dead ends or not. Mm-hmm. It might be that you get so turned around by the time you're in the middle that you don't know which way is back and which way is forward. Sure, I would believe that as well. So it might just be a single path. I am not an expert in anything, mm-hmm. but especially in Greek mythology. Fair. But I would love to tell you something funny. When you said in your talk, and you said here, that like, when people think of labyrinths, they think of, and there was just enough pause that my brain said, David Bowie? <laughs> that is not what I would think of, but I bet you a lot of people at my church would. <laughs> and also, like, shout out to our friends who totally would think that you know who you are. Some of you probably listen to the show. There's, like, three things that come to mind, and it's, like, Minotaur, David Bowie, Pan's Labyrinth. Sure. Like, one, two, three. But I'm glad that we specifically kept it to Minotaurs and not to any of the other ones. Yeah, David Bowie's a fair yeah. thing to think. And Pan's Labyrinth, too, yeah. They're all things with labyrinths, yeah. yeah. But what happens after Greek labyrinths? Can you refresh me? Yeah, so that's way back in time. And we don't get Christian labyrinths until the 4th century. And that's in Algeria. Mm-hmm. I'm honestly surprised it wasn't the 2nd century. All the good stuff happens in the 2nd century. You know, it's it's one of those things. The, the 4th century is when we have recorded somewhere that it happened. Mm-hmm. So it could have been happening earlier. I don't know for certain. And that was in the Basilica of St. Repartus in Algeria. This was the first labyrinth that was Christian. And the thing that made it Christian, they put a mosaic on the floor that was this labyrinth. And in the center, they put the words Holy Church. So now it's Christian. (laughs) I love the idea that you're like, it could be a labyrinth. It could be any kind of labyrinth, but this is a Christian labyrinth and this is how you know. Yeah, we, we are certain this is a Christian labyrinth. Yeah. Oh, backtracking. I, I missed this point. Um, we, had, we talked about Greek labyrinths. Yeah. That's not all that there was and all that there has been throughout history before the Christians get a hold of it. Like, mm-hmm. we get a hold of everything. <laughs> At least you know it's happening. <laughs> as long as you're willing to admit it. Yeah, I'm aware. They've been found in Hopi Native American culture, ancient Celtic culture, Jewish mysticism. They've been found in the Ukraine. I'm sorry, Ukraine. There's no the. Iceland, Egypt. They're everywhere. It, it said in here my notes, Arizona again, but those, that's probably the Hopi mm-hmm. It's tribe. cool that they are so prevalent over such a large swath of time and space. Yeah, and they're just, they look slightly different in mm-hmm. uh, different places, but all same general idea, this winding path that just goes to a center, doesn't break off into branches. Mm-hmm. It's cool. Yeah, I think it's very neat that it's and, so widespread. Yeah, clearly it's a... An image or a puzzle or something that lots of people have been drawn to. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, 4th century is when we think Christians are starting to use it. doesn't get popular until about the 12th century. Part of that is because over the years, Christians wanted to 
be able to walk the steps that Jesus walked. So go on pilgrimages to the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, especially people who lived closer to Jerusalem, this is what they did. But as time went on, there was a lot more political turmoil and people were moving further away and Christians were in Europe now. And so it got harder to do this physical pilgrimage. What people started doing is they wanted to walk with God, but in a metaphorical sense. So they started walking labyrinths because it kind of symbolized taking that path towards God instead of physically going somewhere. That's cool. I think that's a really nice way of being able to take a journey without taking a journey. Yeah. And churches to help facilitate this started including labyrinths in the stonework or in the paint on the floors of the churches. Or sometimes they would do them outside and make them out of hedges. Mm -hmm. When I think labyrinths, I think like garden maze. Mm -hmm. So it's cool to think that there were like indoor ones that were more artistic or drawn or stoned or whatever. Yeah, the indoor ones actually came first. The first big one is the the one that I had mentioned in the talk earlier tonight, built in 1201 in Chartres Cathedral in France. It's the most famous labyrinth. If you Google like, Christian labyrinth or labyrinth prayer, it's probably the one that you're going to see. It's made up of like four quadrants, mm-hmm. and it has a six-petaled flower in the center. And so the reason for the four quadrants is because then it kind of looks like there is a cross or really a more of a plus sign. To me, the labyrinth looks more like a tree than it looks like a cross, but that's just me. It does look sort of tree-like. And so there's the the symbolism of the cross and then the six-petaled flower in the center is a image that is related to Mary. Okay. And is six a specific number for that reason? I didn't see that. So I'm not sure. I'm sure there's some kind of significance to it. I know there's a bunch of other things that are related to it. There's a certain number of half circles on the outside. Mm -hmm. And I know that means something specific. It's, you know. Everybody's got their own symbolism that they add to it. Yeah. The Christians in the Middle Ages love symbolism because they can't read. Hey, it's important. (laughs) So that's the big time of labyrinths. It got less popular in the 17th and 18th centuries because a lot of them got destroyed because they had become a diversion rather than a sacred experience. Oh boy. So people were having too much fun walking in the labyrinths in France that a lot of them were knocked out to get people to focus on their piety. And this is why we can't have nice things. Yeah. But that that one in Chartres Cathedral that I mentioned, along with a handful of others, survived Which is cool because we still have them. Yeah. Yeah. And so throughout history, there's been a lot of different ways that people have used labyrinths. And it's not just in a Christian sense. They've been used in pagan rituals. They've been used to trample evil spirits. They've been used to bring about good luck by walking them. And also for amusement, like I said. I mean, they're fun. Yeah. They're, I mean, there's, gosh, there couldn't have been anything better to do. (laughs) in the 17th century. I suppose. (laughs) Labor and pray and walk labyrinths. Try not to get the plague. Yeah, so that's very brief history because I think it's more interesting to talk about what the experience is of this than it is to talk about what they were because there's not a whole lot there. We could get a little deeper, but 
look at some pictures. It'll help. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you want to just briefly explain like what you do in a labyrinth? Yeah, sure. So today we went into the parish hall and there was this big labyrinth spread on the floor. Imagine like multiple bedsheets sized fabric with this labyrinth painted on it. And so we, you start at this front at the opening mm-hmm. and you just slowly walk through it and it twists and it turns and you go closer and further away and around and you, it's really easy to lose track of where you are in space and how far you have gone and how much more you have to go and all of those things until eventually you reach the center. And then at the center, you have a moment to pause and reflect And then you turn around and you come back the way you came and you go through all the twists and all the turns all the way back until you're out again. And then some like ambiance things. It was very low lighting. There were some some lovely fake candles uh, flickering and uh, soft instrumental music. Yeah, shout out to the uh, prayer and meditation Spotify playlist. Oh, you saw that? I did. I originally was looking at meditation ones straight up, and I was like, nah, I want it to be churchier. It did feel just the right amount of churchy. <laughs> we're like, it never felt like we were listening to church music, but we were definitely not listening to, like, meditation music. Oh, see, it was, like, a little bit of a problem for me, because I was about to start singing a bunch of times. Well, I guess I don't know any of the hymns, so if some <laughs> of them were hymns, I don't know. Most of them were, were either hymns or praise and worship songs. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not that audience. <laughs> so I felt that the music was nice. What I thought was interesting was that we did it in a group. Mm-hmm. So you probably think of the labyrinth experience as sort of private. And I know you have an experience of having walked the labyrinth by yourself. Yeah. Uh, which I'd love to hear about. But we had a group of people who had all come and t- listen to Brian's talk. And then we all went up there. So people just staggered themselves to give people space. But it's not a huge labyrinth, and it's narrow, mm-hmm. and people were coming and going in both directions because eventually their sort of early group turned around and were heading back before other people had finished. So you did kind of jostle and turn and twist and step out of people's way just to give everyone their space. But I thought I actually really liked doing it in a group for a couple of reasons. One, that I think it's personally, it slowed me down. Sure. I think if I'd been by myself, I would have been tempted to sort of rush through it. And I also noticed, especially at the beginning parts, because I went pretty close to the front. Uh, There were three people ahead of me, I think. In the parts at the beginning where I I wasn't near anyone, my mind wandered more. Oh, And I don't know if some of that was just being in the early parts of the labyrinth and my brain hadn't really, like, settled into the experience yet. Or if it was because I didn't have anything to focus on except my own thoughts. But once we were around other people, the conscious sort of passive awareness of everyone else gave me just enough distraction to let my mind clear. So I was never, I reached a point where I wasn't consciously thinking like, step out of the way for this person, do that. But I was just a little more on, I think. Mm -hmm. And it let me clear up a lot more and sort of find that empty headed meditation feeling instead of thinking about tomorrow or thinking about what I was going to say when we recorded this podcast (laughs) or whatever and what have you. Yeah, I think that definitely makes sense. And that's awesome because that's the whole idea. You're supposed to sink deeper into the feeling as you get deeper into the center of the labyrinth. Yeah, and I totally did. I thought it was really interesting just because I come from a yoga teaching background. 
And we always talk about yoga as this moving meditation. Mm-hmm. And you use the word meditation in your talk quite a few times. So it gave me, I think, a better point of reference as to what the experience you were going for was. For sure. Then I think if like the word meditation had never been said and like prayer or observance or whatever, any other word you could use there, what do I think made the experience more challenging for me? Yeah. Just as someone sense. who doesn't pray that I, I think if I had gotten caught up in the idea that this was a prayer, I would have had a harder time surrendering to the experience because I would have just been self-conscious about like, am I doing it right? What's going on? But because it was as simple as let your mind go clear your thoughts, walk in, walk out, and this sort of point of reference of it being like a meditation, Yeah, I was able to enjoy the experience for me for what it was. Yeah, so how, how would you say the experience compares to yoga? I think it's very similar. Mm-hmm. I think I was joking with you right before we started that I have the sort of absent-minded yoga brain that I tend to get after a class where you're, your brain has just like softened and opened up to a point where you're a little spacey. Yeah. And we joke at the studio that it's yoga brain. That's the moment where you leave your phone on the counter and then you walk (laughs) out of the studio and you come back five minutes later because you left it or because you like have, you take, forget to put your socks on because you're just off on another planet. Mm -hmm. And I felt a little bit of that coming out of it, which is a nice feeling of stillness and calm. Yeah. So I did really appreciate that. Cool. So what do you think is the biggest difference from yoga? I think... In your experience, not yoga. Yeah. Not, <laughs> not all yoga. Yeah, not trying to say uh, everyone labyrinth praying and everyone yoga, but... <laughs> yeah, I think I am not someone who practices any of the sort of more stiller and meditative types of yoga frequently. Mm-hmm. I probably should more. But um, because it was more of a single repetitive motion as opposed to like a constantly varied motion... Sure. The pace and the sort of calm, I think, hit faster... And harder than it would in like a yoga class where you're like moving and moving and moving and then you're still. Mm-hmm. Where they are like, it creeps in and it creeps in and creeps in and then it sort of hits you right when you slow down. Yeah. Whereas this, because it's slow, it like creeps in faster and sticks around longer. That makes sense. Which was interesting. But I could see, I, I mean, it just felt like very yogic from an experience perspective in a way that I found really enjoyable. Yeah. The one thing I loved is when we were having the discussion, one of the other people, she mentioned that she also enjoyed the doing it with other people thing. Mm -hmm. When she said that there was a difference between passing different people, because some people it was very smooth and it was like a dance, like gliding past each other. And other people, it was a bit more stilted and awkward to try to shuffle past them. And she compared that to a metaphor for the way you move through the world Mm -hmm. um, in your life. And I just thought that was very neat. Yeah. What I thought was interesting, and I don't know if you observed this, but once you'd made it to the center and like were working your way out, I felt this sort of like passive imperative to let the people who were still going towards the center pass me before I passed them. Oh, interesting. I think I was more likely to seed the path Mm -hmm. on my way out than I was on the way in. Almost like I've already been there, like your turn. Sure. I wasn't doing it consciously. But I started noticing the more I worked my way out, the more I was stepping off to the side. Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to actively passing someone, where because we were both going in the same direction, just like at parallel points. Yeah. So we would just like turn to the side and keep moving. Whereas if I was coming down the same end head to head with someone, I was more likely to just step off to the side and let them go. Okay. Which I thought was interesting. interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely, as you get towards the end, you you can kind of feel yourself coming out of it. Yeah, it lightens. Yeah. 
which is interesting. It was funny getting to watch you walk part of it at the end because you started later than I did. Because mm-hmm. you were very, like, head bowed, hands clasped. You were closed your eyes a bunch of times, which impressed me because I totally would have fallen over <laughs> if I had done that. Well, part of it, for me, it's, especially as the person who is facilitating, mm-hmm. I, if I didn't focus very hard, I would be looking up, making sure everyone was okay. That's fair. Which is part of why I walked it earlier, mm-hmm. because I knew that it, I was going to do that, um, and I wasn't going to actually get to, like, really experience the labyrinth. <laughs> How was your solo experience earlier in the day? It was good. I, um, I wish I had turned on the music for myself, I think. I didn't have mm-hmm. the music set up yet. So it was, it was just silent, and the path is a little narrower even by yourself than you typically want to walk, so there was, mm-hmm. it did feel a little bit like I was balancing as I was walking. So. Oh yeah, for sure. The, the two things that really struck me in walking were the going back and forth in and out, and so you, you weren't really super aware of how close you were to the center, which was just an interesting experience, and an interesting way to get lost in it. And then the other thing is I kept feeling my eyes drifting up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's because I'm a planner. Yeah. I need to know what's coming next. So Mm -hmm. I had to think really hard to not look how much of the path is left to the center. Where am I headed? For me, it's a very much a practice of focus on what's right ahead of you. What's right in this moment. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that makes it most useful to me. That's smart. Yeah. I definitely caught myself doing it a few times looking ahead and sort of seeing where the next couple turns were, where the next big turn was happening or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I am also a planner, so I can see that being a thing. But I think that this is a really interesting way to pray, because as someone who doesn't have a prayer practice, uh, you always think of prayer as like, in my mind, it's like kneeling in front of candles and talking to God. Right. Um, I don't know. That's what I got. The idea of prayer can be a lot of different things. Yeah. And that you were talking about how you struggle with stillness and I struggle with stillness. And so having this way to connect for people who maybe do not get as much out of kneeling in front of candles and talking to God mm-hmm. and can rather let messages come to them or can sort of like hash things out in their own mind in a more active way, I think feels really accessible. And I think it's intelligent that there are are options available for all sorts of people so that more people can get the benefit of the practice. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I was looking through my notes for the term. So what you're thinking of, the praying with words, talking to God, is called cataphatic prayer. Okay. So that's words, images, scripture. There's something actively running through your head. Sure. Um, or your bit you're saying it out loud, whatever. What we were talking about where it's basically meditation, or very similar, is apophatic prayer. And that's... You go beyond words, beyond thoughts. And so you're just opening yourself up entirely. Mm-hmm. And that that is kind of what we were going for. Though there's a little more wiggle room with, with labyrinths because you can pray on a scripture while you walk through the labyrinth. Yeah. No, I was actually just really astounded with all of this about the parallels I was seeing to yoga and meditation practices. Because mm-hmm. I was having a conversation with a yoga teacher friend of mine who does a lot of sort of like intuitive work and has a really strong meditation practice. And was talking today about she had been thinking about a particular thing she was working on Mm -hmm. and sort of meditated on it. And then the answer came to her. 
Yeah. And it's like the way you guys were talking about the labyrinth. If you have a question, step into the labyrinth with the question and like maybe you're left with the same question or maybe an answer comes to you. That's the exact same practice of like you are letting your mind open up to whatever your problem you're trying to solve and somehow you are being brought to a solution. Be it you find yourself answering the solution or you feel like your intuition is giving you a gut feeling about a particular option or God is telling you a particular option. Mm-hmm. It all just feels super universal. For sure. And not yeah. that different. And that was why I picked this one in particular, because it does transcend the Christian part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is so useful just for figuring out something within yourself, whether it's God is within you or wh- whether it is just a deeper part of you. Yeah, for sure. I guess like the nosy neighbor in me wants to be like, so who like had an experience with God in that (laughs) Like, because the idea of having an experience with God is so beyond my mental comprehension Mm -hmm. that, like, there's no sense for me of, like, whether, like, a religious person and a non-religious person, but maybe someone who feels like they have an intuitive sense about things, if, if they are secretly actually experiencing the same thing, but they have different points of reference for it. I bet it's pretty similar. And I'm sure it's similar for some people, and it's totally different for other people Mm -hmm. on both sides of that. But, like... The curious part of me wants to be like, when God comes to you, like, what does that sound feel here <laughs> like to you? And then like to someone else, like when you meditate and like the universe tells you something, like what does that sound like feel here like to you? And like, when does that work? When does it doesn't? Like, I'm just full of questions, but they're all like nosy personal questions about people's own religious experiences. And I'm like, for sure, not about to interrogate a bunch of strangers in your church about their religious experience. <laughs> For me, like, especially in things like that, it feels more like it's probably God when it's not something that I directly asked or expected to hear. That makes sense. Like, the thing that came to me while walking the the labyrinth, both times I was very aware of it, is there's these sharp turns where you turn completely around. Mm -hmm. And you can see another part of the path, but there's this line between you and you're not, you don't cross that, basically. So it really struck me as a a feeling where, like, your path is blocked. Mm-hmm. You can't go forward in the sense that you would traditionally think so, but you're still moving. And that just where I'm at in my life, that really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. These, like, hairpin turns of, like, I'm going, it feels like I'm going back in the same way I came, but I'm actually going just slightly off of that. Right. I'm making progress, but not in the way I expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a an interesting... And very, like, grounded message to take from the labyrinth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the message that you needed to hear in that moment, which I think is always helpful. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if anyone else had any more sort of, like, esoteric revelations. I think you would be surprised. Um, a lot of people, their religious experiences are often so mundane. Sure. Like w- what I just explained, I think that's going to be more of what you hear. Like, there are definitely people who, like, have earth-shattering revelations, but Mm -hmm. that's not most people, not most of the time. Fair. Yeah, I think I'm, with all of our discussion of, like, saints and apostles and people (laughs) who have had these, like, massive, life-altering, like, reality-shaking religious experiences. For sure. That I tend personally to forget about the more day-to-day religious experiences. You changing the light bulb story. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Is one that comes to mind. For people of faith, there are all of these... Like, their relationship with their god is way more day-to-day. 
Yeah. And mundane. And that part is almost like more unfathomable to me than I had dreams of angels and now I'm going to war. Okay, but like, what about when you go to Colorado and you just look at the mountains? Well, yeah. And like, just that, just like the wonder of looking at the mountains. Yeah, but that to me isn't a religious experience. I would, from in my frame of reference, it is. Sure. <laughs> Great. I think maybe if, if you think of like, there are people who think of that as... An everyday religious experience. Maybe Mm -hmm. that makes more sense than, like, it needing to be something Mm -hmm. wild. It's opened up my mind to the idea that there are a lot of things that I find powerful. Mm -hmm. That, to me, my brain doesn't go, like, this is a religious experience. That's fair. It could be a religious experience in someone else's frame of reference. Yeah. You know, like, this morning I went to this uh, early morning dance party event. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And it's called Daybreaker, and it's super awesome, and I encourage everyone to do it. They're all over the world. You should go just, like, sober dance for two hours before you go to work. God, that sounds awful to me. It's so much fun. (laughs) It's so much fun. And they have, like, a – they call it their anthem that they sort of, like, play at the end of the Mm – and I've gone to enough of them that I know most of the words. And there's this moment of sort of lightness that comes with everyone dancing and singing at the same time. And it's, like, a very hopeful message. And it, like, it's just exciting and feels good. Yeah. And that's sort of my mini religious experience of the day. Yeah. It was just my sober early morning dance party crowd. Yeah, I love that. And, like, you you absolutely do not have to label it a religious experience. Mm-hmm. But, it, yeah, that's the kind of, I think that's the kind of feeling that a lot of people would. Yeah. One more question. Sure. What are your thoughts on finger labyrinths? I like the finger labyrinth. <laughs> so for context, on the back of the handout that Brian gave to everyone was a big printed out version of the labyrinth we had just walked through with the sort of encouragement that if you are looking for a labyrinth prayer experience without a physical labyrinth, uh, that you could trace your finger through the labyrinth as a sort of similar activity. And I tried it. And it's way harder to know if you're in between the lines (laughs) with a finger labyrinth. Like, I spent way more time worrying about if I was doing it right. Because it's way harder to tell. Like, it's easy to get lost. My eyes just would cross and, like, blend together after a point. That's fair. I'm... (laughs) I shouldn't be, like, sitting here doing this uh, during the podcast. Brian is trying to see whether or not he understands what I'm talking about. Yeah, again, we're so great at this uh, audio-only format. Yeah, we're getting better and better at it. (laughs) But I think it's a cool idea. It's nice to, like, pocket labyrinth. Yeah, and definitely not a thing I made up. Other people do this. I believe you. But yeah, it's because, like, there are two labyrinths in Chicago that I'm aware of. Yes. You know what the finger labyrinth actually reminds me of? Is, like, uh, when you give an adult or a child, but someone with either, like, an attention disorder or, like, a sensory disorder, Mm -hmm. like, an object to play with to focus them. Oh, yeah. That totally makes sense. like, it gives you something to do with your hands. So that your brain can think about everything else because your hands are busy. And that's sort of like what the finger labyrinth is. So is it's like a way to like move part of your body so that your mind opens up. It's a fidget spin. So lab- labyrinths are, I was about to say that, labyrinths are ancient fidget, <laughs> fidget spinners. Basically. Fidget spinners. <laughs> Would you want to say that sentence again for the audio? Um, no, nah, we'll leave it. Okay. <laughs> Let it be known that I gave him the option. <laughs> Uh, this is the second time through, so, you know, yeah. doing great. <laughs> He's doing an awesome job. Is that all we have on Labyrinths? That's that's all I've got, unless you had anything else you wanted to talk about or any other questions. No, this was really fun. So thanks for everyone for listening to us 
chat about our own personal experiences. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back for our regular fun. Sounds good. And we're back. And now it's time for the patronage pop quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint and she has to guess what they're the patron of. Let it be known, I did some time looking through a book of common prayer while we were at Brian's church, and there's a lot of saints, a lot of saint days, but none of them talk about patronage, but I have saints on the mind. I'm ready. Yeah, they're... It just tells you what their feast day is. It's just a calendar. (laughs) But like, I don't know, the planner in me likes to just read other people's fancy calendars, so. Yeah, I mean, there are like specific colics that are like short prayers that you can say for different saints on different days. Yeah, the book of prayer is like dense. Oh yeah, there's some good stuff in there. I didn't get that far. I did a lot of thumbing and it was like, if it's a Tuesday in Advent, you read this line. And if it's a Thursday at Easter, you read this line. And it confused me. Well, yeah, there's a lectionary in there. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) Okay, who's our saint this week? So this week we have St. Benedict Joseph Labre. Labre, like Labyrinth? No. Oh, I got excited. I might also be pronouncing it wrong. That's fine. He's French. Okay. Tell me about him. (laughs) He was born in 1748 in Amet, France. He was the oldest of 15 children in a middle-class family. And as a child, he seemed drawn to a life of austerity, showing an aversion to normal childhood amusements. Serious, serious child. But it was also said that he had a frank and open demeanor and was a profoundly cheerful person. Cute. So balance. Yeah, sure. <laughs> he wasn't like Scrooge over there. No, he he was fun, but I don't know. Simple. Yeah. He enjoyed the simple things in life. Yeah. <laughs> All right. He was educated by his uncle, who was a parish priest, but he found himself unable to conquer a constantly growing distaste for any form of knowledge which did not make directly for union with God. So he only wants to know about religion. Yeah, oh man, I feel seen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but like, I feel like you also are interested in knowing other things. I am. He, yeah, he like straight up didn't want to do any of his studies unless it was him and God. Yeah, and if that was you, then you'd have to give up baseball. Oh man, an opening day is tomorrow. tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) What a terrible time to give up baseball. Exactly, you can't give up baseball. (laughs) This guy gave up baseball. I... This guy was before baseball. <laughs> also that, but he gave gave up essentially baseball. Whatever his equivalent was. Sure. I don't know. I don't, it's also probably an accurate mistake, but my the picture in my head is like hoop and stick. Sure. <laughs> it could be. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea the history of hoop and stick toys. Fair. <laughs> I don't know the history of baseball, apparently. Um, but anyway, back to Benedict. Unfortunately, his uncle died during an epidemic in 1766, while the two of them were working to help the sick and the dying. So after his uncle's death, he tried to join a few different orders of monks. He tried to join the Trappist, the Carthusians, and the Cistercians, but was rejected by all of them because of a combination of lack of education and poor health. The lack of education was probably his own fault. (laughs) I didn't realize that you had to pass a physical to become a monk. I mean, they live austere lifestyles, or at least did in this at this point in time. So it was pretty rigorous on your body. 
like you had to work to keep the monastery running mm-hmm. you so you had to be prove that you could like be a productive contributing member of the community yeah they have a pretty strict prayer schedule you had to be able to get to all of those prayers so there's reasons that it's fair and i don't know what to what extent his health was poor okay so he was rejected from being a monk after these rejections he spent years wandering europe mostly rome the only things he took with him on his journeys were an old coat a rosary that he put around his neck, another rosary that he held between his fingers, a crucifix that he held tight to his chest, and a small wallet that contained various pies books. Wow. I don't know that this article has the same idea of what a wallet is as I do. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> also, does this imply that he's only wearing a coat? No, he definitely had... Robes or pants or something? Yeah, he definitely was wearing some other clothing under <laughs> He wasn't just coat. like flasher style wearing a coat and a rosary? <laughs> I hope not. That's weird. (laughs) This guy already (laughs) seems pretty weird. He's not that austere. He had clothes, probably. Okay. Maybe it was a hair shirt. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, So, while he was uh, wandering around Europe, he spent his days in perpetual adoration at various cathedrals. During this whole time, he was deeply in poverty because he wasn't working. He was spending his time in perpetual adoration. Sure. So he had to beg for anything that he needed. But if he was given more than he needed for just that day, he would give the extra to someone he considered worse off than himself. He was known for healing his fellow homeless people and multiplying bread for them and just generally being a counselor to people of all walks of life in Rome. He was also known for religious ecstasies that he experienced while contemplating the crown of thorns. I don't even have words for that. I'm going to leave that one right where it is. Oh, but there's more. Oh, boy. During these ecstasies, he would float, fly around, and sometimes bilocate. Wow. Yeah. That took a turn I was not expecting. <laughs> so, like, pretty intense. So now he's a homeless magician. K- kind of miracle worker, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Homeless magician for God. <laughs> Which, you know, might have been why people of all walks of life were like, yes, talk to us. Yeah, you're cool. You can fly. <laughs> And also, there's two of you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, unfortunately, he died of exhaustion from his life of austerity at the age of 35. But he kept up that uh, strict schedule after his death. Within three months of his death, 136 miraculous cures had been attributed to him. Wow. Like, people who had been cured by the ghost of him? Or, like, people coming forward later and being like, I remember this guy, he cured me of this thing. Um, no, it would have been, like, people prayed to him and then were cured. Yeah. Okay. Which is, like, kind of how most people who are not martyrs end up being saints. Awesome. So he had way more than he needed to be a saint. Clearly. He went <laughs> above and beyond. He did. Overachiever, this guy. Yeah. Except in school. Yeah. He did that to himself. <laughs> so, Shannon, what is St. Benedict the patron of? He has to be the patron of homeless people, right? He is. He is the patron of homeless people. Great. (laughs) If he wasn't, I would be actively mad. (laughs) That would be so funny if he wasn't. Yeah. So, the fullest. uh, Against insanity, against mental illness, for bachelors, beggars, homeless people, mentally ill people, people rejected by religious orders, pilgrims, and unmarried men. Cool. I was also going to guess people rejected from religious orders, but I didn't want to believe there was a saint for that. 
but like I'm glad that they have their own. Yeah. I can imagine if you are deeply religious and rejected by a religious order that it's nice to have a guy in your corner. You know, I've been there and did not know about this guy, so... Now you know. <laughs> now I know about this guy. And he's he's neat. He's something. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the reason I actually picked him was for Pilgrims. Because I don't think I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but I did mention it in my talk. Or no, I did. Yeah, about, about Pilgrims, Labyrinths instead of Pilgrimages. Yeah, yeah. Labyrinths were like symbolic pilgrimages. So, Pilgrims. I like it. Good stuff. Yeah, and uh, while I'm back to labyrinths, one more thing on labyrinths. If you think they sound interesting and would like to go to one, you can look up the website www.labyrinthlocator.com. And I'm sure Shannon will put that in the notes. I will. Also, thank you so much to Adam Griffin for our music. You can check out his website, alteringgravity.wordpress.com. That link is also in the notes. Hey. Thank you to David Griffin for proofreading the notes most weeks. Important. Also for the logo and for the editing. (laughs) Very important. All of those things he does for us. If you're enjoying the show, tell a friend, write a review, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can just tweet at us. Our Twitter is at School4Heathens. Both Brian and I check it pretty regularly. Or you can send us an email to SundaySchoolForHeathens at gmail.com. I think that's everything this week. I think so. Amen. Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod. Mm-hmm.